0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Well, welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a podcast about ethics, theology, and philosophy in a technological society. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news and top resources. You can subscribe now at JasonThacker.com slash Weekly Tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thaddeus Williams, an associate professor of systematic theology at Biola University, and we talk about his recent book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, and the role of social media in these divided times. He's also taught philosophy and literature at Saddleback College, jurisprudence at Trinity Law School, and was a lecturer in worldview studies at Labrie Fellowships in Switzerland and Holland. He resides in Orange County, California with his wife and four kids. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech Today. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background, kind of what got you interested in a lot of these topics, and why you ended up writing this book?
0: Sure, that's a great question. You know, I teach systematic theology at Biola University, and I've always considered myself sort of a generalist, where, you know, I I am fixated on how the lordship of Jesus applies to every square inch of life so from where i'm coming from there's really nothing out of bounds or any territory of reality that jesus doesn't declare mine Um, so i've been interested in literature and art and and most of my books um, i sort of want readers to be confused like what am i reading is this apologetics is this systematic theology is this church history is this literature Um, is this poetry Um, And the answer is yes, (laughs) it's all those things. Because again, if Jesus is Lord over every square inch, then uh, we should reflect that as best we can. So when it comes specifically to questions of social justice, which is my latest book, uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, I just noticed in all the, the speaking and traveling I do that for probably, man, I'd say 20 years, some version of the problem of evil, you know, how can a good God exist if the universe is so messed up? Um, that that would be the number one question. But in the last four to five years, that's shifted pretty dramatically to the point where how as Christians do we think biblically about social justice? Some version of that question has now taken first place. Uh, so that was the first Motive behind the book is just realizing, man, there's a lot of Christians out there seeking biblical clarity on these questions. And I'd say a second big reason was seeing a lot of friends and students of mine getting swept up into certain social justice um, ideologies, we could say. And they just slowly became unrecognizable to me, where the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience slowly just got replaced with bitterness and rage and resentment and assuming the worst of other people's motives and and self-righteousness. And I was seeing this happen and really scratching my head and and trying to get to the bottom of it. And I realized at at the root, there are a lot of uh, very trendy ideas about social justice that are on the rise these days. And I'm just convinced uh, a lot of these ideas are um, a direct assault on a Christian worldview um, and directly undermine Christian characters. So that, that's two of the big reasons. And real briefly, one of the, the final reasons is a lot of the stuff I was reading out there was super polarized. So it was either, you know, you think racism exists, well, then obviously you're a far left social justice warrior snowflake Marxist, or maybe you think this or that isn't uh, as racist as it's cracked up to be, okay, well, obviously you're, you're an alt-right um, fascist neo-Nazi or something, and, and I'm only slightly slightly embellishing there. That tends to be the way these conversations go, and so I, I hope to put out a resource that could actually draw Christians together um, to think it through biblically and as charitably as possible.
1: Yeah, that's one thing I notice about the work is that you do take a very balanced approach to a lot of these issues. You have a lot of different contributors. One of my favorite people is you have John Perkins doing the foreword for the book. I um, always love uh, Dr. Perkins and the work that he does. And in the book, you really lay out – I think a lot of people is exactly what you said. Kind of when they hear social justice, there's an immediate image that comes to mind. But in the book, you lay out a Christian or a biblical vision for social justice and saying that you make the case that social justice isn't optional for the Christian. Can you help us to understand a little bit of a biblical understanding of social justice and the role of the Imago Dei in a lot of these conversations?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, just think of how many passages God doesn't suggest, but he commands justice. So here's just a quick sampling. Do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Uh, Most of us are familiar with Micah 6, 8. It's not what does the Lord suggest of you, right? It's what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. And this just is a running theme uh, from Old to New Testaments to do justice. And so I argued that, you know, that there's no such thing as sort of a private injustice or even like a private sin that won't in some way affect others because sin just by its very nature and injustice by its very nature, they're corrosive. Um, they, they send out sort of a destructive ripple effect on the people around us. And so in a sense, all injustice is social injustice, and in, in the sense that it affects people around me, um, and, and the flip side of that coin is also true. If I'm doing real justice, it's going to bless the people around me. So, you know, there there is sort of a raging controversy. Can we use the term social justice, um, especially since the term has been co opted by um, ideologues, political ideologues? In my view, is you know, let's not get too hung up on on terminology here. The term was invented by a Christian thinker a little over 200 years ago. Um, And if it's being used and abused today, um, well, let's reclaim it and inject those letters with with biblical content. And so throughout the book, I draw a distinction, a very basic distinction that runs throughout. On the one hand, social justice A, um, simply defined, that's the kind of justice that's compatible with the biblical worldview. Uh, but on the other hand, a lot of what's on the rise these days is what I call social justice B, which is deeply incompatible with the biblical worldview. So, you know, you ask, well, what are some of the marks of biblical justice or social justice A? Um, just, just to throw out some teasers, uh, you know, a little preview, some appetizers here. Um, think of that famous wedding passage where Paul's describing love Right, love is patient. Love is kind. In that famous list defining love, Paul says that real love is not easily offended. It's not easily offended. I I would say that's one mark of biblical justice: um, is it's marked by a a slowness to take offense. The social justice B movement that that we're seeing on the rise today is the exact opposite. It actually encourages and inspires people to take offense. Um, The more offended you are, the more virtuous you are by their standards. Um, A second uh, point of distinction is biblical justice is going to start with the pride leveling reality from Paul's argument in Romans 3. That it's not just Jews as a people group who have sinned. It's not just um, Gentiles as a people group who have sinned. His argument crescendos in chapter three when he says, "All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." So, in a biblical approach to justice, it's not going to play these kind of uh, inner tribal identity group games of saying, "Well, I'm in the good group. You know, we we've been oppressed. You're in the bad group. You're the oppressors." Um, rather, it's going to cut through, or, or I should say, it's sort of like a wrecking ball that that smashes far left versions of identity politics and far-right versions of identity politics where, you know, my economic status or my skin tone or my XX or XY chromosomes will determine the worth and value of what I have to say. In a biblical view, no, we're, we're tragically united in Adam, but then there's this new identity, this in Christ identity that draws people together from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You know, Paul's argument in Galatians In Christ, there's neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, uh, neither male nor female. And so a biblical approach to justice is going to give us a foundation for real, meaningful unity that you just won't find um, in the social justice be alternative. And one of the reasons you you sort of nodded to this in the question is, how does the image of God fit into all that? Um, If I'm starting from a biblical perspective— then even the people I'm most passionately in disagreement with, before I see them first and foremost as, say, you know, an enemy on the battlefront of a culture war, and now it's my job to smite them, I need to see them at a deeper level. I need to see them theologically. I need to see them through biblical lenses where this person is an image bearer of God. And when that clicks, it's really hard to keep... You know, playing that, that name calling game, the mudslinging, um, the assuming the worst about everybody who disagrees with me. So, uh, if you look at the social justice be alternative, there just isn't a category for the imago day. And so, it lends itself more readily to being able to use, you know, some pretty dehumanizing language to describe people who don't agree.
1: So early on, you mentioned a little bit some of the issues that kind of fall under that umbrella of social justice, obviously issues of race and racism in our, our country and our society. But what are some of the other types of issues that fall under this kind of larger umbrella of social justice? And how does the Bible help us to think through some of those issues and uh, remedying that injustice in our society?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a massive question. I would say, you know, Race seems to be at the top of the list for most folks these days. Um, obviously, sexuality is right up there. Um, going back to the uh, the Windsor Supreme Court case and the um, Obergefell case with the redefinition of marriage, um, and even since then, there's been a lot of momentum behind um, redefining the very meaning of our our biology and gender. So. Uh, questions of the transgender movement are wrapped up under the banner of social justice. Uh, questions about the size of government, capitalism versus socialism, so economic questions tend to be wrapped up in that. Um, the right to life um, versus abortion is certainly one of the the leading headlines uh, under the social justice banner. Um, So, yeah, it it stretches, you know, a pretty vast field of complex questions, and it's sort of a minefield, right? Like, it's hard to really navigate any of those questions without stepping on a mine here or there and offending somebody. Um, So I I won't go through how specifically Scripture speaks to every one of those questions, um, but I will point to sort of a a meta-level biblical principle which is uh, when, when Jesus is described in the Old Testament, there's a passage that says, um, it's in Isaiah, he won't judge by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, um, but with discernment, he will make the right judgment. Um, Jesus indicts the Pharisees, I believe it's in John's gospel, um, because they're all bent out of shape at what they see as an injustice, a, a Sabbath day infraction, a violation of, of the Sabbath. And Jesus reprimand to them is, you know, don't judge by mere appearances, make the right judgments. Uh, there's a passage in Jeremiah where the text doesn't just say execute justice, but it says truly execute justice, which presupposes there are untrue ways to execute justice, ways that we think we're helping when we're actually hurting. Uh, and so I, I try to build a case in the book as clearly as possible that it's it's not enough to just sort of repeat Bumper sticker slogans about which lives matter. Um, It's not enough to just hashtag our solidarity with this or that group. Uh, It's not enough to just say, oh, well, well, we love the poor. um, Therefore, you know, we support socialism. Like, But that's sort of where, in my experience, a lot of Christians out there, where they're at, which is we're settling for bumper sticker slogans. And we fail to do the hard work of loving the poor, not just with our hearts, but also with our heads, meaning that we think really deeply about, is this thing being called racism actual racism? Are we falling into um, a form of critical race theory where any disparate outcome is automatically racist? And so now, as Robin D'Angelo, one of the... Um, most read and celebrated social justice B proponents of our day, a best-selling author, you know, she argues in her books that it's never a question of is racism manifesting here. The question is always, how is racism manifesting here? And once we buy into a mindset like that, where everything is injustice all the time, I think it distracts us from it's sort of like we we dilute the word injustice or we dilute the word racism so much that people just get exhausted and can't really discern the real injustice from its counterfeits. And so I would say, you know, kind of on that, that meta level, as we think about injustice, the big biblical principle we can draw is we got to be discerning and not just settle for kind of the polarized platitudes we're thrown these days.
1: Yeah, digging a little bit specifically on some of the critical race theory issues and issues surrounding uh, identity politics and things, we often see in what you're calling social justice be an elevation of group identity over against kind of some of the biblical categories of being in Adam or in Christ. And I know that's one of the criticisms that a lot of Christians have of the social justice movement broadly is saying you're elevating this group identity. Help us to think through some of the valid elements of understanding kind of group dynamics and the ways that certain groups have been disenfranchised over time, but also as Christians, how we think about the category, as you said earlier, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do we navigate some of those tensions between those worldviews?
0: Yeah, so, so I'm gonna um, resort to... <laughs> My mentor, my friend, the, the living legend of the civil rights movement, uh, John Perkins, who, as you mentioned, was was kind enough to to write the foreword to Confronting Injustice, um, and he he shares four basic points. You know, he just he just celebrated his ninetieth birthday not that long ago, and he's looking to the next generation of of Bible believing justice seekers. And so he says a few things. He, he says number one. Um we gotta start with God. That, that's that's his first bit of insight. He says, if you don't start there, then these, these tribal identities are going to lead to tribal warfare. Because if we don't start with God, then I'm not starting with the image of God as the premise of how I engage somebody. Um, so it will, if you don't start with God, devolve into intertribal warfare. His second bit of insight. Um, is he says, be one in Christ, be one in Christ. And he says, you know, basically regardless of the melanin levels in your skin cells, um, recognize that you have been adopted by the same father into the family of God. You have been redeemed by the same son, by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and you're inhabited by the same Holy Spirit. And so whatever cultural differences or melanin-level differences or XXXY chromosome differences or whatever other kind of cultural category we could sort people into, um, that is a running thread through New Testament theology, is that we are family. And if we aren't reminding ourselves of that often, um, then we're going to fall into these you know, polarized political traps and start you know, excommunicating each other left and right. His third bit of advice um, is to keep the gospel first. Keep the gospel first. The the historic gospel, which in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, like, this is the first thing. I passed on to you what was of first importance. And so we want to make our first thing the Bible's first thing. And and what was of first importance? Paul cites this ancient, and some scholars think uh, it's actually the earliest, earliest creed, we have on record from the first century church that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day and appeared. So the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, if we get so swept in, quote, social justice, that the best news in the universe, the saving death and bodily resurrection of Jesus kind of becomes an afterthought, um, then, then Perkins says, we aren't doing justice. Uh, and fourth, and finally, he says, he says, teach the truth. You know, coming from Perkins, fourth nugget of insight to the next generation, teach the truth. And he clarifies, he says, don't, uh, don't go with what's politically in vogue, what's trendy right now. Don't go with what what politicians and what presidents say. Um, don't side with the Twitter mob. Um, God's word is truth. Because when we start there, it's going to take us back again and again to the fact that we all need community. In Christ, we join a every tongue, tribe, and nation kind of community that gives us a foundation for being a true family. Whereas the further and further we drift from the text, the more we get swept up into the political moment, uh, which is all about us versus them, tribalism. So, yeah, I'm just going to punt that question uh, to my hero and mentor, John Perkins.
1: Well, uh, John Perkins obviously is one to uh, follow after in his example and the way that he approaches a lot of these issues. He's a, a hero of ours. He's been involved at the ERC and with Dr. Moore, and I know we very much treasure his insight and also his wisdom in those issues. To dig in a little bit deeper, specifically as you're talking about the rise of polarization and tribalization and identity politics, specifically playing out – through the advent of social media, as we look at social media, social media really exposes a lot of these issues that have been around for a long time, but it exacerbates a lot of these issues and flames them as we are able to kind of separate ourselves into these tribes in these uh, different kind of warring fashions online. Throughout your reading and out throughout your research, what role did technology, specifically social media, play in some of these identities and tribalization and polarization? How do you counsel Christians to use these technologies more wisely?
0: Yeah, that is a, a profound and, and pressing question there. So, so a few just quick observations. We're really, um, with the advent of sort of the trifecta of the Internet— Um, Social media platforms and smartphones, you you put those three things together, which is extremely new in the history of the human race. And what that means is I now have at my fingertips instant access to everything horrible happening on planet Earth, (laughs) like with a few swipes, uh, a few button pushes, and I, I can quickly be pulled down a rabbit hole of depression depressing headline after depressing headline, which, you know, I say in the book, it's it's sort of enough to make us envy the Amish in the sense that, you know, if I'm out in Amish country in Pennsylvania, what am I concerned about? It might be my, my friend, uh, Zeke's busted wagon wheel. It might be, you know, that, that my friend Moe's has a, you know, a horse with a bum leg or something like that. Like the world was, is smaller. Um, and therefore less just overwhelming. Um, but I think a lot of the fallout of the social media and smartphone revolution is we just we don't know how to cope with scrolling through a news feed and seeing everything horrible sort of thrown into our field of consciousness on a daily basis. So, so that, that's, that's part of the problem. Um, the second part of it is... Uh, we need to contextualize the the rise of the, of social media. When it happened, particularly in, in American history, was we were coming out of the 90s. And in the 90s, you know, this is back when a dial-up motive modem sounded like, you know, the squeals of a dying cat kind of thing, and, and you would log on to AOL, um, and you had so many hours, and the internet was really just in its infancy. Well, the internet came to be when I would argue um, relativism was at its peak in America. The the anything goes attitude, really the only thing that was sinful in in the mainstream 90s was calling anything sinful. So it was very much the anything goes uh, moment in American history. Well, part of the problem there is that that anything goes style relativism just doesn't fit our design god designed us according to scripture to be part of an, an epic drama a moral drama of good versus evil to to fight the principalities and the powers to take every thought captive into obedience to Christ to to trample uh, the serpent like all this powerful epic moral imagery is all the way from the old into the new testament because that's actually Why we're designed is to be part of that grand moral melodrama, and relativism just took that from people, because relativism just can't give you anything bigger than your own personal tastes and preferences, certainly nothing bigger than you worth living or, if need be, dying for. Nobody's going to die for their favorite flavor of ice cream, right? We don't die for preferences. Um, So, On the heels of that, I I would argue that relativism has a shelf life. It can only last in the society for so long before a craving for objective morality, absolutes bigger than us we're dying for, kicks in. And I think we're living through that right now as social media has become basically a a fixture of, of life in the 21st century. And so you have a lot of people who were bored morally through the 90s who all of a sudden now the pendulum swings the opposite direction. So I need to to be a warrior. I need to um, to signal my virtue to the masses. I need to be able to, to hashtag my solidarity or, or my outrage at every new headline because that's a heck of a lot more exciting. It makes me feel a lot better about myself than just sitting around you know twiddling my thumbs as a relativist licking my favorite ice cream flavor so so I think just setting it in the broader cultural context that's part of what we're seeing is that convergence of a new technology that enables people to voice moral outrage unlike any platform humanity's ever seen coming on the heels of a, a stage of extreme moral malaise and boredom um, you, you put those two things together and You have a recipe for everybody being outraged all the time, being outraged at others who either don't have enough outrage or the wrong kind of outrage. And I say in the book, it's really quite outrageous. Um, So to the question, you know, what can Christians do in a moment like that? I would say, you know, we don't want to just write off social media. One of the things the church has been great at through history is whenever there is a new um, innovation, New new ground is is pioneered in communication technology. You know, as soon as the Gutenberg press comes out in late fifteenth century, Christians are right there at the forefront to say, Let, "Let's get the Bible out there in a way that it's no longer um, under lock and chain in a in a Roman Catholic cathedral. Let's get it in the hands of the masses." Um, you know, when when television comes around, just at any one of these decisive. Um, technological leaps forward, the church has adapted uh, and often been at the forefront. And so I would say, um, as Christians, we don't want to have kind of this this Luddite, um, well, all social media is bad, but I know people who are um, hearing the gospel for the first time through social media. Um, my, My dad is very active in doing sort of, he's got this mission field in cyberspace Uh, where he's reaching out to Baha'is and he's reaching out to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims, uh, and able to have meaningful points of contact and and share the gospel. And so um, I I would say, you know, it's it's not something to be afraid of as much as something to capitalize on uh, for the sake of the gospel.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way to put it because often uh, we've recently had some guests on talking about the missiological impact of technology and how the church can embrace these tools for good. But even broader kind of social and political understanding that in many ways social media and smartphone technology has helped to expose certain bits of racism or areas where there has been abuse um, of fellow image bearers and so even having cell phone video and being able to see what's actually taking place rather than just simply taking people's words for it but as you were talking it reminded me a lot of a book that we've talked a little bit about here on Weekly Tech, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he's specifically writing this in like the late 80s, specifically talking about the rise of te- uh, television. But you see a lot of his arguments paralleling to kind of making a lot of connections to modern day social media and a lot of the issues we're facing there. Because what he was showing is in many ways, TV and by extension, social media trivializes so much of what we see. And we kind of grow numb to what's actually happening. So at the same Time There's that exposing of a lot of injustice in our society. We can also grow very cold to it because we're seeing these things over and over again, and often they're packaged in entertaining ways. So rather than waiting 22 minutes to get the whole world, as Neil Postman would say, We might have 22 seconds or even less than that as we're scrolling through Twitter or Facebook going from post to post to post. And so there is that unique tension in this age of social media with the benefits of technology and the good ways that these technologies can serve not only the church but our society. But also a lot of the numbing effects or the dehumanizing effects of these technologies. So there's so much there obviously that we could – camp out on and talk about. Um, But I think the way you're approaching it specifically from a mythological standpoint, I think is really helpful.
0: Well, well, let me just add just, just real quick um, a a few like real nuts and bolts kind of bits of advice on, you know, navigating a technology that can, can be ambivalent and can pull us in really good directions or the opposite. Um, So, so two things immediately come to mind is Everything I was saying about um, the the missiological potential, um, we need to recognize something in the book that I describe as the Newman effect. And I'm borrowing here from a a 2018 viral interview between uh, Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson uh, and Channel 4 host Kathy Newman, where anytime Peterson makes a point, the response was, so you're saying, which quickly rose to meme status, Uh, And and so you're saying, followed by the most just cartoonish, inflammatory, and damning interpretation possible of what Peterson was saying. So some examples. So you're saying women just aren't smart enough to run these top companies. Um, So you're saying uh, we should build our societies to be like lobsters. So you're saying trans activists could lead to the genocide of millions. And of course, for for every point, Peterson was like, no, that's not even close to what I'm saying. Uh, But I argue in the book that social media has sort of made Kathy Newmans out of all of us, where, you know, oh, you posted that we should wear a mask during COVID, so you're saying you hate freedom and you love tyranny. Or you're saying we shouldn't wear a mask uh, okay, so what you're really saying is you, you hate grandmas and you want, you want more grandmas to drop dead. Uh, and, and so we need to just, as we engage this very new technology, to not play by those rules because that's how most conversations that I've seen on important questions tend to go as we, we buy into the Newman effect and automatically assume the worst of other people's motives. Um, the second bit of advice here is if you think of the rise of millennial and Gen Z folks who don't identify as religious, there there is a clear uptick uh, over the course of the last 10 years. And so researchers tried to get to the bottom of it and said, hey... Uh, Are you reading a bunch of Richard Dawkins? Are you reading a bunch of Sam Harris? Are you reading a bunch of Chris Hitchens or or Daniel Dennett? And and most of the responses they got were, who were those guys? Wait, what, a book? You want me to read a 200-page book? The the number one answer that came back for why people were settling themselves uh, in the atheist camp the number one answer was some version of, oh man, I saw this really hilarious, like two minute YouTube video of this guy just ripping Christianity, or I saw this TikTok of this guy making fun of the Bible. Uh, and so people were now settling ultimate questions, <laughs> eternally weighty questions, based on like some two minute soundbite they saw or some. You know, 60 second clip. And so that's something we want to be very careful of, especially as we deal with complex questions like, like race, um, like economics, like sexism, like um, abortion, like fill in the blank. As Christians, we just, we can't settle for sound bites, which means we need to deliberately resist the algorithms that will only send us the kind of stuff we're already buying into, we need to be very intentional about breaking out of our echo chambers. Um, Because as the Proverbs say, like one side sounds right until um, you hear the other side. And so for Christians committed to truth in the age of social media, we need to be as intentional as possible about getting at the whole truth by escaping the echo chambers.
1: And I think that's a great segue to the next question, kind of the final question for today is, as Christians, as you rightfully say, need to be intentional about pursuing truth and also pursuing depth and knowledge and understanding um, you mentioned early on about not a lot of people saying, well, what books? And they were like, well, I don't read any books or pushing and saying, well, 200 pages is too much. And, you know, I watched this two-minute YouTube video. What are some books uh, that you would recommend for folks, maybe one or two works um, outside of this really helpful book on social justice that help us to understand some of these issues, uh, whether from a more historical perspective or more of a practical outworking of, on some of these?
0: Yeah, well, the one I've been going through, again, recently, that seems like it was written for now, uh, for these crazy times we're in, but it was written a couple hundred years ago, is uh, William Wilberforce's Real Christianity. Real Christianity by William Wilberforce. It's rightly considered a classic. Uh, And what he does there is he's able to merge just rock-solid theology. You know, Wilberforce has a clear grasp on Mm -hmm the historic gospel of the Christian faith and the implications of that gospel for society, uh, particularly when it comes to to questions of justice and social justice. Just like Perkins has been able to fight injustice for 60 years without budging on the historic Christian gospel, um, Wilberforce is is cut from the same cloth. Um, So if you want to read from this brilliant man of God who helped abolish the british slave trade Um, and there's just it's so rich there's so much to draw on there as we um, confront racism and other injustices in our day i I would put william wilberforce's real christianity towards the top of that list Um, another resource especially we didn't get a chance to talk about this much today but um a lot of social justice causes Um, revolve around questions of gender, gender identity, sexuality, um, religious freedom gets wrapped up in there. Um, And there's a very recent book, uh, many of your listeners have probably already got their eyes on it, uh, but The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, um, that's by Carl Truman. He does a really helpful job of kind of walking through the history of some of the ideas that you know, used to be in the ivory towers of academia, but have now gone mainstream to the point where, you know, 12 and 13-year-olds are parroting these ideas, having no clue that they came from, say, Michel Foucault or Gromsky or Nietzsche or Jean-Paul Sartre. They don't know the names or, or the sources, but these ideas are just part of the air we breathe now. They're Part of the, the plausibility structure of most Disney movies, most entertainment aimed at little kids. Um, and so if you want to be discerning in this cultural moment and see a lot of the trendy ideology for what it is, I would put uh, Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self uh, pretty close to the top of that list.
1: And for listener's sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those books, especially uh, Carl Truman's book. We actually had Dr. Truman on the podcast earlier this year, so we'll make sure to link to that interview as well, um, because as you said, it's a really helpful overview and kind of how we got to where we are um, type of book and understanding a lot of the modern issues that aren't just recent issues. They're actually more historical issues that we just uh, fail to understand a lot of the depth and the context there. And so, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for being here on Weekly Tech and for uh, allowing us to have a few minutes to pick your brain and to understand a little bit more of why you wrote this book and why this is important. Um, As you say early on in the book, uh, you don't make a lot of friends with the book uh, because you're (laughs) kind of critiquing both sides of uh, these issues and kind of going in and helping to provide a really helpful biblical understanding. So thank you for your work on that.
0: Absolutely. It's been a joy to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Williams and learn more about his work as well as the books he recommended in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, alongside the top tech news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.